All right, welcome back. Here we are. Here we are. Episode 35. Diggity, diggity, 35 of our <laughs> Science in Between podcast. Of this adventure that we're yes, sir. started here. Yeah, and I'm Scott. I'm Ollie. And this week, are we going to call them design principles or are we, we going to go move over to the prime directive? Because I really enjoyed that. I have I to say the, 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 the nerd in me is the star, the Trekkie, the Trekkie in me, right? Is yeah, liking... I think we have to consider whether we're going to continue to feed the nerd in you or whether we're going to kill the nerd in you. It I'm gets little... fed regardless of I feel of like it's a little is. overfed, maybe. Mm-hmm. We need to dial it back a little. Yeah. Well, you know, way, way back when, you know, I was a little nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Nerd in training. I was like, what am I ever going to be able to do as a little nerd? And here I am. Here you are. Here I am. Now, you know, this is what you're going to do. Right. You're going to talk into a microphone and record it on your computer and then post it on a website for other people to download and and put in their ears holes. holes. I know. (laughs) Like seven or eight people might listen to this I know. podcast. Dozens. Well, Dozens. Let's not right. overstate. So we've been teasing for the last couple episodes about uh, these design principles. And wait, wait, wait. I thought it was just one episode. Well, we, episodes? we have kind of mentioned them in other episodes, Scott. Mm. I mean, the, right. the, it, I think that the regular listeners know they've been waiting regular for us. Listeners. They've been waiting for us to talk about this. And yeah, they're for like, sure. Ooh, the design Ooh, finally, it's here. <laughs> the episode I've been waiting for. Yeah, and here it is. So do you want to talk a little bit about like what, when we talk about design principles, what do we mean by that? And like maybe a little bit about how this, these developed. Sure. Um, so, I mean, there's lots of ways to take design principles um, as a general notion um, from where I get them from or where I would talk about them in terms of their origin is from design-based educational research. So, um, so in that world, one of the things that, um, that, that world is about mixing practice and research in intentional ways, um, where you design learning environments, you articulate the principles that those learning environments are designed on. And then that can help guide your study of that. And we, we're not going to go too deep into the researchy side of that, but the point of it is that it's not just saying like you, you don't want um, rows of desks that face the front of the classroom because that's just a prescription and it doesn't help because it's a, it's a, it, it's too narrow. Right. So what we're trying to think about is how do we think about ways to characterize learning environments that draw on learning theory that are grounded in research and learning theory, but articulated in flexible ways so that people can use them across learning environments And I think for us in particular, the thing that Ali and I have been really interested in is how do you articulate those design principles in ways that cut across physical, online, remote, like that are not constrained by the kind of learning environment, Um, which again, going back to this idea of like the goal isn't to have all the chairs in rows facing, well, the goal isn't that, but the goal isn't some particular configuration of chairs in space. The goal is some sort of, for us, usually practice that we're trying to get at, and how do you design the space to do that? And and I'll, I'll say one more thing, um, which is one of the ways you can think about it that I recently heard um, as a description of project management, which is project management isn't the work, it's it's the organization of that work. So the way to think about that is 
It's the glass that holds the water. It's not the water. And I think that's what we're talking about here is we're not talking about exactly about learning, but we're talking about the context in which learning happens and how do you design to optimize those environments for the best possible version of learning that you can get. And so when we're offering these design principles, we're trying to just provide some guidance in terms of when you're designing a space, when you're thinking about a space, whether you're creating, you know, you know, selecting how you're going to set up a physical classroom or how you're going to set up your learning management system or how you're going to set up. And we can get into the weeds of like, you know, hey, you're going to be working in, you know, Schoology or, hey, you're going to be working in, you know, Desire to Learn or Canvas or whatever. Those are all just like, you know, like you say, the, the glasses, right? And it's like, how do we design those spaces, those environments to support the types of things that we want to happen in, and from our perspective of what learning looks like. And, and a lot of the people who are having these conversations, who are making the decisions that are happening in classrooms are not people who work in learning. Right. Or there are architectures, there, there are architects, there, uh, there or are architectures, maybe, or, or sorry, yeah, that too. There mm-hmm. are architects or, you know, they might be uh, computer programmers or mm-hmm. they, I mean, and those folks, they, they have valid perspectives on things, but I think what they uh, fail to see is, you know, different ways of learning and specifically from our point of view that, you know, learning happens through social means Mm-hmm. And through people, you know, talking and interacting and making meaning together and experiencing things together. And that is a type of thing that we have to consider as we design learning environments. Right. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things to your point that's really hard is so folks that don't have backgrounds in learning deeply the way that Ali and I do and um, is is that they they have you know, the, what we talk about is the apprenticeship of observation, which is that they've seen a lot of teaching. They've right. been victims of particular kinds of teaching. They have notions of what teaching is or, or should be. Um, and that's how they're making uh, decisions about pedagogy in classrooms. And I think, unfortunately, that means that what you do is reinforce the status quo, even when you think you're innovating, because you don't understand how deeply ingrained these theories are in the way that you operate. And so you make decisions that you think are going to be inter- interesting or transformative or whatever it is. And it turns out that really you're just sort of, you know, messing around on the, f- the fringes and not getting at the at the core of what really is wrong with these systems. So, I, you know, again, we've talked about this, I think, in multiple episodes, but how much learning theory is baked into people's understanding about the way that humans operate in the world and what that means when they're doing decision-making about things like space. And like you say, it's the, it's the architects, it's the office of physical plant people. It's the, it's the people who are responsible for, you know, putting in the HVAC system that are making decisions about um, how these classes should be organized sometimes. And I'm not saying they're not taking learning into account. It's just that the way they take learning into account is, is so um, superficial and driven by basically the way they were taught that it's very hard for them to to understand that maybe the way that they're thinking about the classrooms doesn't make sense. And that actually the way that they're thinking about the classrooms is reinforcing some of the, the bad behaviors that we really want to get rid of. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing that's pretty critical before we jump into this is that space is not neutral, 
right? It's mm-hmm. not, right. it is, it is not a neutral thing. It, it af- affords certain types of practices, right? And mm-hmm. so if you walk into like on campus, on college campuses, they have these big, huge lecture halls with immovable seats and immovable, immovable desks. And, you know, it, that affords a certain type of instruction. It's the one-to-many approach. And what that, it also communicates what learning is. Learning is delivery. It's a transaction. It's one person delivering to many. Now, you can kind of hack that space, right? You can, as if you were a, you know, uh, a professor or a, an educator who comes into that classroom and says, you know what, I'm not teaching like this. I know I have 150, 300 students who have been who are taking this class and I'm going to break the cycle. I'm going to use this space differently than it was designed. I'm going to hack it, you know, and I'm using that term, you know, not necessarily from the like hacking of the computers, but using it for a purpose it was not intended to, right? So, uh, you know, hacking, you know, there's a, a whole bunch of like Ikea hacks out there. You can, you know, buy a Ikea, you know, table and, and hack it to do something else. Mm. And that's what I'm talking about here, that you walk into one of these big lecture halls and saying, I'm going to hack it and use it for this other purpose. That's hard to do. And you yeah. have to like go in and you almost have to like train someone and say, hey, I know that this is what what you usually do in this space, or this is what this space looks like. Cause I think when you walk into that, everybody knows, okay, you sit down and you swivel in this little immovable chair mm-hmm. and that's, that's it. That's all you can do. Yeah. Um, you almost have to intentionally explain to students and others that we're going to do this, some, something different here. And mm-hmm. that takes work because the space has intended something different. It was designed not as a neutral space, but as a specific, from a specific perspective of learning. Right. And this is and and this is a general property of technology, right? So we can right. think of space as technology because Absolutely. it is. Um so so it has attributes that support certain kinds of things and it had a, it has constraints that that reduce the possibility of other things happening there. So you do have to fight against those things. And, you know, to give a shout out to one of our mutual colleagues, Jeff Adams, um, he, he has pictures of himself when he was teaching, like crawling around on top of these desks in those, in those lecture halls. And, and that, you know, that's an extreme example. And, you know, Jeff's willing to commit to that sort of uh, acrobatics and, you know, uh, to get, to get the job done. But I think that idea of thinking about, how you can we think in advance about how we design these technologies, all technologies, including space. But as we said, like we're also talking about technology technologies when we're talking about your learning management system or, or your, you know, whatever system you're using to interact with your students. Cause these days you're using, maybe you're using LMS and uh, something like zoom or Google meet on top of that. And so you've got multiple layers Um you know, I know like here in, in state college, they, they just bought a lot of teachers, these giant monitors because they're all these different tools simultaneously. And they have to be able to see like, Oh, I'm looking at zoom over here and I've got go guardian over, over here open. So I can see all the different kids' laptops. And then I've got to have my chat window open here for that. And my email open for this. And, and so they have to have the, you know, it's like a, a control center that they're operating these days. So, so I think we're in a very, you know, we're, we're in this space, place, whatever you want to call it these days that there's so many different ways to think about what a learning space is. So I think we wanted to take a step back and say, well, are there some principles that we can talk about 
that cut across all these different environments that we can use to help us think about how to make them operate the best way to support as many students learning as we can. And so we're going to offer some and, and understand that we're using these as we're uh, offering these as, as a way for you to think about how you're using your space and how best you can maybe think about like moving stuff around or changing things, or maybe even like it gives you some ideas for how to change the space that you're in, whether, you know, it's like redesigning your, you know, course in Canvas or whether it's, you know, thinking about how you organize your chairs in your classroom. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, that's the intent. And some of you may not have that kind of control. Like maybe you're working in a, uh, a school system that everybody has to have the exact same, you know, structure and space in their learning management system, or everybody has to have their rows lined up or, you know, certainly now with social distancing, it's like, Hey, they mm-hmm. have to be six feet apart or three feet apart or whatever it is. Um, and, and so those limitations absolutely, you know, play into this, but, you know, But you have to be, I mean, the ethical, moral, correct thing to be doing is even in those environments, looking for edges and places where you can push and where you can say, yeah, I got to do this with my students. But without and by push, we mean push towards good teaching, not push against the system necessarily, though sometimes those things coincide. But this idea of like, okay, if, if my my system is asking me to do X can I wiggle that a little? Can I move that a little? And and the idea that we're trying to to characterize here is to give you some principles, right? So one of the one of the ways you'll hear teaching talked about is as disciplined improvisation, right? And so that means that you have to be responsive, you have to work with with your students and and be a part of that community with them. And that and disciplined um, improvisation is a way to think about that. But the important the important part that we're talking about really right now is the disciplined part. So how do you make those improvisational decisions in ways that aren't arbitrary or willy nilly or whatever you however you want to describe that? Like how do you do that in intentional ways that move the the learning environment in the direction that you want it to? And hopefully that means the 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 more equitable, the more responsive, the more high quality learning environment and whatever you can do to move that way within the constraints is, is what you need to be trying to do. I like that, that term. I've, I haven't heard that term before the disciplined improvisation. That's great. Yeah. So that comes from a couple of different scholars. So Keith Sawyer and um, Thomas Phillip um, and I, we can put this in the show notes, but it, I think it's a term that's been around probably predates both of those. Um, I mean, certainly I think Hilda Borko might've talked about this prior to that. Um, but this idea that that's, you know, teaching, it's not improvisation in a traditional sense. And even, even improvisation isn't undisciplined. It, it, there's a structure to it, but, but that to be able to improvise, like if you think about jazz improvisation, it, it only works well if you understand the structure that you're improvising within or against, right. And you can't, you know, real, real jazz masters understand that real, real people who are exceptional teachers understand that there's structure. And then within that structure, you find the flexibility to do what is amazing. Um, So figuring that out is, is the trick. That's a great way of framing this conversation, Scott. That's awesome. Yeah. I really like that because I think that, you know, it does talk about, you know, looking for the opportunities that you have within the environment you're in to, you know, 
to kind of go off and do your thing and, and hack it. And yeah, you know, that's great. Give it so, to the man a little bit. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I'll say like, this is the the last aside before we actually jump into one of these <laughs> is that it's a lot of build up, right? It's yeah. just like, Oh no. So some of the other work that I do is, is around, um, uh, around educator ethics. And so I've been uh, developing some stuff with, uh, with uh, another university around the model code of ethics for educators. And so this is, uh, but one of the principles that is threaded throughout all of the different principles in this, the MCEE, the MISI, I guess, I don't know, Mm -hmm. the model code is advocacy, right? And so built into that is like, hey, not just understanding it, Mm. but also be an advocate for it. And I think that's the thing is, if you are in a school where you're not able to like have control, that maybe this can help arm you to be an advocate for different types of design and different types of learning environments, or actually having a little bit more control and, you know, flexibility. Um, yeah. So yeah. advocacy. Yay advocacy. for advocacy. Yeah. <laughs> Let's advocate for advocacy. Yes. Yes. There, there you go. All right. So, we, we debated as to which one we would start with. And, and I think where we're going to start is uh, around uh, scaffolding authentic practice. Mm-hmm. Yes, a we lot, are. There's a lot there. There so, is a lot there. So, so learning spaces should scaffold authentic practice. So I think the, 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 the first thing I want to unpack is the idea of, of scaffolding, right? Like oh, that's okay. it. Yeah. All right. So, All right, I mean, you, I, so, I'll, so I'll do authentic <laughs> practice because that's the one I really want to unpack. So right. you do and, scaffolding. Yeah. So, so scaffolding, this is, this is very, you know, Vygotskyan, right? This is like going back to, you know, uh, zone of proximal development. This mm. is, I, if you're out there and you're, you've gone through, you know, an education class in the last like 20 years, then this is like, you know, speaking your language. Yep. The, the idea is that what we do is, you know, as we're, we're trying to build you know, learners to, to new developmental, developmental levels. And the way we do that is we have supports and then we move them to a, a different level. And then we pull those supports and we create new supports and we help them. And as that zone of proximal development is that we as experts are trying to help students um, by being on, you know, being on the side, right. Being on the side and getting them to develop um, in this term proximal development, right. That's mm. the, that that's like right to the limit of where they can go. And then we, you know, build supports and move them to the next step. And I, I think the best example, here's my, the best example. Can, can you hold it for one second, sure. just so I can talk about ZPD for a second, because sure. for, for those of you who aren't Vygotsky nerds, I want to clarify this just, just a tiny bit. We're going to be a bit esoteric here, but we do that occasionally. Right. right? So, so Vygotsky Soviet psychologist worked in, you know, turn of the last century um, but was translated and brought to the U.S. mostly in the 80s. And, and um, so this idea of the zone of proximal development was in direct opposition to um, to the idea. This is in direct opposition to the idea of traditional IQ tests. So one of the things he was trying to say is IQ tests, intelligence tests, didn't really understand how kids operated, right? And so there was this idea that you could do there there should be a zone and the zone was defined by the lower end of the zone was your ability to do um to do a task unaided and then the top of the zone was your your ability to do the task aided. 
And so, uh, so, so that defined an individual zone of proximal development. And, um, and so it was an expanded notion of intelligence. Your intelligence covered that whole range. All right. So I'll, I'll tell a little bit of a story that, that relates. So I, when I went to teach my uh, daughter to ride a bike, right. Um, she was, she was a, a, a really a difficult uh, bike rider. I, I remember taking her out when she was probably like 10 and, and saying, okay, let's go out and learn, learn how to ride a bike. And I was teaching her the way that like every parent, I guess, apprenticeship of observation coming back to that, you know, teaches their kid to ride a bike. They put them on a bike and they take off the, you know, the training wheels and they push behind them and then let go. And just like, and I'm shouting, you know, pedal, 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 steer, 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 balance, balance, balance. And like just shouting and yelling and running lots of that. Right. And I did this for a solid three or four times one summer. And then my daughter was like, I'm done. I've fallen enough. I've cried. I'm done with this. And so the next summer comes along. She's a year older. Uh, I'm like, okay, let's do this again. And I try the exact same thing. And she falls a couple of times and she cries a couple of times. And she's like, dad, I am done with this. So it's now like maybe a summer or two later and she's seeing some of her friends riding and she's like realizing that she's probably getting to the point where she's got to learn how to ride a bike, right? And so she had a day off of school and I said, okay, today we're going to learn how to ride a bike. And I'm like, oh gosh, there's got to be other ways to learn how to ride a bike than this, this. So I went online and, you know, did what every, you know, 21st century parent does now. They Google it, right? And I Googled and it was tear-free biking or something I think I came across. And I was like, this is it, right? I'm, I'm, I'm in. And found my solution. Found my solution. No more tears. And, and so the first thing they suggest to do is to take off the pedals. And they said, take yes. off the pedals. And I went, what? Take <laughs> off the pedals? That's like absolutely nothing like what I've seen everyone else do, right? So this is actually a good metaphor for apprenticeship of observation and for CBD, right? Because what we did was I, we, I put her on a bike. I took her to a big parking lot and I said, just scoot. I took off the pedals, just scoot. And she could scoot. She could just like use her legs. And, and little by little, she was, you know, going further and further and further, just you know, scooting and steering and balancing. And so eventually what we did was she first did the balance and was able to balance for longer and longer distances. And then what I did was I took like little cones and stuff and, and had her steer through these different things before pedals were even on. So what we did was first master, you know, balance and then master steering. And then after she got those two things done, then we put on the pedals and we started to do the pedaling. And so what we did was we broke down all of these things were, you know, authentic, right? They were all, you know, smaller subsets of a bigger practice, right? So this is actually a lot of good stuff in this story here, Scott. So the, oh, look how happy you are. I am happy because I, I have, it's, we've made it to third episode 35 without me telling my bicycle story. Um, and this is, I, this is one of, I will say they're like my proudest achievements in my life, like Two of them are teaching my kids to ride bikes because it's something we do so much. And, and so this idea is, you know, I scaffolded the, the practice because it wasn't just like shout, shouting, you know, steer, 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 balance, 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 you know, pedal, pedal, pedal. You know, I helped develop expertise in one of those before introducing the next one. 
right? So there was all these supports and scaffolds to get them to the to a place where they could really do that successfully. And then I made the, ta the task more difficult. And then when they reached a certain level of expertise with that, then I made the, the, the task even more difficult. And so that's a really, and that what was, what was wild is I hadn't even really thought about it from a learning theory perspective until after it was done. I was like, oh, well, yeah, I guess I should have thought about this, you know, uh, some website from, you know, some bicycle company taught me how to do it. Right. Know? Yeah. No, and this, and well, now they've got balanced bikes that you can buy. They just don't sure. even have pedals. So the kids that learn that way, but yeah, I mean, I think that's a great story. And I think it's, it exemplifies, as you said, a whole ton of really good stuff about what we're talking about here. Um, but that, but that idea of, I mean, one thing I'll add to that is, is the idea of scaffolding. And I think the story shows this too, is that it just like scaffolding, well, two things, one scaffolding is not the house scaffolding is the thing that builds the house. And then so it it goes away, right? And that's the second part of it, which is this scaffolding is meant to disappear. Um, now, new scaffolding in a ZPD sort of notion, this you have to basically rebuild the scaffolding, right? Because right. part of what de defines the difference between the low end and the high end of the ZPD is that scaffolded support of of a more knowledgeable other, which in this case was you, right? Yeah. But but that scaffolding shifted, so the kind of support that she needed for the first task was different than the second task. So you had to basically disassemble. You didn't, you didn't support that part of the practice anymore. Now you were supporting a different kind of the practice or different part of the practice. And so scaffolding is, is a, is a dynamic moving thing, especially in learning environments. Um, but even in, in traditional like house environments, like you don't put up a scaffold and leave it there forever. Um, right. uh, see, the idea is to put it up there with a purpose to build something and then move it away. So so yeah, scaffolding is, um, yeah. And it, it's, you know, it's a really contended area in education too, because it's, it, it feels like very intuitive, but once you try to put it in practice, it's, it's trickier than that. So that's half of the, the uh, design principle. That's half of that, right? That's half of it. That's, that's my, yeah. my half. Well, that's, you did that's help. Ollie's you, did, you, you helped. I did. Uh, I'll, I helped I'll, try, I'll try to jump in as I may. I'm, sh I'm sure you'll be helpful. You always are. <laughs> Thanks. So, um, so uh, yeah, so, so authentic practice. So why do we use that particular turn of phrase, right? So scaffolding is important. It means something. It's connected to Vygotsky and lots of um, learning theory and authentic practice is as well. And it, it mostly draws out of this Brown Collins and do good classic um, paper. Um, so, so that paper really, um, and we'll put this in the show notes and we referred to it before in this podcast, but that paper was uh, important for the following reason. One of the things they said is learning is contextual, but they were more nuanced than that. They didn't just say it was situated they connected it to the actual practices. So basically they said it's different to learn science if the if the way that you learn science, the activity that you engage in, isn't something that scientists actually do. It, in other words, it's not authentic practice, right? So so they were the ones who, who building on Vygotsky, um, took this idea of what does it mean to, to learn something in, in context, situated, right? Um, and, and flesh that out and make it meaningful. And basically one of the big things that came out of this was things like the next generation science standards, right? The idea that, um, learning and learning science and doing science are inextricably tied to each other. Right. And when you separate them, you, you lose meaning on both sides of it. So they don't, 
students don't understand the practice. They don't understand what science is as a thing, as a, as a living community. And they don't understand the content of it either because the content's separated from the practice and it becomes just all this information that they memorize. So this idea of authentic practice is incredibly important and, and is, a, is a key heuristic here to thinking about what learning environments should look like. So, Wow, you dropped a heuristic on us today. Look yeah, at you. sorry. I, no. you got me you got you got my esoteric side wound up here today. I know. So really well, dropping the dropping the the uh research bombs a lot. But are, let, let me just finish one thing sure. about that. Uh so, so the um so this idea of authentic practice can be a way of thinking about learning environments. Is the thing that you're asking the kids to do authentic to the to the discipline or the the place where this would happen in in the real world? Yeah, and, and how is the learning su- su- space supporting that to happen? And I think that, right. so I think what would be useful for us to, to do is maybe provide some a- examples. And I think one of the things that we might want to do is to think about like, like the Brian Brown stuff we, we spent a few episodes talking about. And if you're a newer listener- Are you listener, talking about friend of the show, Brian Brown? Friend of the show, Brian Brown. Okay. And so if you're a newer listener, you want to go back a handful of episodes where we talked about um, Brian Brown's book, uh, Science in the City. And yep. Episode and, 16, I believe, is when that one starts. And so in those episodes, we, we talk about like his, he has a, a, a way of teaching science that's really discourse based, right? It's about talking about science. And that is an authentic practice in science. It's about making claims, you know, based on evidence and talking about science and explaining phenomena around us. That is an authentic practice and our learning space has got to be able to support that, afford that, right? Mm-hmm. And so there, it's got to support conversations. It's got to support dialogue. It's got to support uh, discourse. Um, that could be written. That could be, you know, vocal. That could be, you know, but our space has got to be able to support that and scaffold it so that we give, provide feedback, you know, to students that so we have them doing this in some, and now this is an example. It's not the example, right? Mm, right. But I think it's a really useful example because we want to create spaces that allow those types of that kind of discourse to happen. Yeah. And I think it comes down then to really thinking about what it means to, to do authentic science talk. So as, as I was talking about with Brian, like there, there are ways to think about that, right. That it, and, and science talk is both substantively, substantively and not uh, the same as other areas, right. So it has its own, its own uh, epistemic twists, right. Science has its own things, um, that are that are the kind of ways that scientists produce new knowledge and and understanding that's important if we're going to talk about authentic practices. So you know, like Ali's saying, there you know things like claims, evidence, reasoning. Now that cuts across across or that concept of claims, evidence, reasoning, or claims, evidence, warrant, or whatever version of that you want to look at. That cut, does cut ac- across disciplines. That's not science specific, but how it plays out in science is somewhat specific. So I think you know, thinking about how do you design a learning environment or a space, whether that's a physical space um, or an online space or a remote space, how do you design a space to support that? I think that's what we're talking about. Like keeping that in mind is, is my learning environment designed to support in this case, talk uh, in, in, in a particular kind of talk when it comes to science, which usually means you have access to 
to things that help you investigate the natural world, right? So your learning environment should have those things as a part of that. Um, because otherwise you're, you've already stripped away some of the, the authenticness. Um, what, I mean, one of the big advantages of science as a, as a K-12 activity is there's been a recognition of this for a while. So the idea of a lab is something that's been a part of science teaching for a while, right? And sure. that, that is a version of authentic practice. And, and, it, and science is one of the only areas that really has that. I mean, art certainly does it. Um, because that's a, you're engaging in art in that class, but, uh, I, um, you know, the, it's not, you know, in some of these other disciplines, it's not set aside as, oh, you're going to actually practice. You're going to do what mathematicians do, um, in the same way, or maybe, maybe it's, it's the same. I don't know. Well, I think that, you know, teaching this out as a design principle, it's not just a design principle for science. It's a desp- design yeah. principle for learning and for teaching, because I think that, you know, if, if, you know, we have some folks that, that listen that are art folks and, and maybe w- one of the big areas for s- authentic practices is critique, right? That's a big mm-hmm. area in, it's an area, but it's a big area in, in art education is to be able to get feedback, provide feedback and provide critique on, on other people's work. And so the learning space better afford that, right? Mm-hmm. right. And and if it doesn't, then it's not scaffolding authentic practice. And so I think a good non-example would be worthwhile here. Like, so I, I, I see some people creating, you know, spaces for their, you know, online for their classes and they just dump content. They, it's like a hard drive, right? It's a hard drive of here's a bunch of PowerPoint files. Here's a bunch of Word files. Here's some PDFs. And so what it, it becomes, it's, it's, it's the same as the delivery model for the person who got, walks into this big lecture hall, right? It's the content is the, is the space, right? right. Yeah. And so there's no space for there to be discourse. There's no space for, or the only place where students are actually sharing their voice would be in a place where maybe they're you know, taking a test or maybe they're a, this, maybe a discussion forum in which they're, you know, responding to, you know, a prompt where they're, you know, not talking about science in authentic ways or not talking mm-hmm. about the content in, in authentic ways. They're, you know, doing something de- different, right? And, and that I would say is, a, is sort of a violation of this principle, right? Right, absolutely. It's, it's not scaffolded in any meaningful way. And it's certainly not affording authentic practice. And so that's a, that's a good non-example of what we're talking about. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I agree too. I mean, I, I didn't mean to imply that only science can engage in authentic practices. Right. No, no, no. Yeah. I think, I think my point was, and I, and I, and I also don't think you were taking me up on this either, but the, but the, um, the point was that science has this sort of whole separate period in for many classes that gets devoted to that task specifically um, where you say, Oh yeah, that's a lab based class. So that's a, that's got its own special designation where you have to do authentic stuff, which of course the vast majority of labs are not anywhere near authentic stuff um, because that's not what scientists do is, is like follow rote procedures to, to come to known answers and then just characterize the, you know, the experimental error um, right. God forbid. Um, so, so that, that idea of, uh, like, how do you think about authentic practice and what is the nature of, of the learning environment to support it? I mean, that's, that's one of the things with science that I think is tricky because, um, 
ideally you would like the the learning environment to be responsive to the things that kids want to investigate. And sometimes that's possible, but sometimes that's really hard. Um, so, so having the physical materials that you need to let kids do those investigations. So it does require a little more creativity sometimes to think, um, in advance to the degree that you can about things that kids might want as parts of investigations and also to plan your, your, your curriculum well, so that you have investigations sort of in your pocket that, you know, kids that are going to come up. Right. I mean, this goes to this sort of arc of how you plan curriculum, but but designing a space where where you're going to have access to to tools that students can use to investigate problems that you know they're going to raise about a phenomenon that you're trying to investigate. Like well, this cycles back cycles back to your disciplined improvisation, right? Mm, yeah. Indeed, but, yes. Uh, so that's yeah, a yeah. nice way to cycle back to your idea because that's I think that's what we do as teachers, regardless of the content area, is that as these things emerge in, in our classrooms, there we go, oh yeah, here's something. And you kind of, you know, want to be responsive to the students' interests and their motivations and their, you know, their ideas. And and so, you know, that discipline improvisation, that's the that's the winner that for me today. That's the thing that I'm gonna, you know, walk away yeah. with today and go, I learned something new today from you, Scott. And that go. happens every day, but oh. today was special. I don't think it happens every day though. Uh, every no, day you well, and I hang out. This there happens. you go. Thanks. I like that. Okay. Yeah. And, and same, same for me, Ali. I, it, it's just, you know, I mean, this is, this is, I mean, we don't tell the people this in the audience, but this is why we really do this is so we get to learn from each other. We get to hang out. We get to hang out together once, once or twice a week to, you know, just shoot the breeze, talk about yeah. science and learning. And, and you know. luckily like 12 or 13 people listen along with us. <laughs> yes. Or, people, you know, I know like you, someone, this is a good story. Someone emailed you, right? This is, yeah, I need to tell this story. This is yeah, Why don't you? Yeah, this is so, your story. So I shared um, this podcast with some colleagues and um, I don't, are we naming names? Are we doing shout outs? We already did Jeff Adams. So sure. Shout, sure. shout out. So, so, um, but now, but now see, you caught me unaware. So now I need to, well, I'm going to try and, um, and give the proper shout out because the initial yeah. shout out, um, goes to my friend and colleague Heidi Carlone, um, because uh, she, I, I know, I told her about this, um, and uh, about this being the podcast. And then, okay, here. So, so the deal is, then she told her doctoral student Allison, and Allison, I'm sorry, I don't know you, but I look forward to meeting you someday. Shout um, out to Allison. And and she uh, listened to this podcast while she drove 700 miles, which uh, Ali and I did the math on that, which basically means she listened to, if, if that's true, sure. that she listened to nothing but us, which is a terrifying thought. Um, but if she actually did that, then she listened to the whole collection of our podcast uh, during her drive. So, so I said to Heidi, uh, she, we owe her a gift of some kind because sure. that, that is a tremendous commitment to, um, to this. if if we ever get merch uh we need merch don't we we need some merch uh i think allison's gonna be like the number one receiver of you know we should ask her to contribute some ideas about what the merch should be yeah that's and then and then once we produce it we'll send her a free whatever that merch is whatever that is t-shirts coffee mugs yeah i don't know yeah so all right 
design yeah. principle number one, learning spaces and scaffold, authentic practice. It's like like dense. There's a lot there, you yeah. know, for you know the five or six words that are there because it, it encompasses so much really good learning theory that I think reflects who we are as as teachers, as educators, as teacher educators. You oh, know? look at that. Look uh, what you I, did there. there. Uh, 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 uh. I know I'm proud of myself. But um but I think that it gives us a, a really good starting point for where we go from here. And yeah. so, um, yeah. So we're, we'll, we'll revisit, we'll revisit this one for sure because it's yeah. important. Um, but we're also going to move on and talk about some other principles. Um, and, and in fairness, we're trying to flesh these out too, Ali and I trying to, you know, understand what our thinking is around these areas. Cause we did some thinking together around these, um, but I think we're revisiting that thinking now. So um, yeah, they were literally on the back of a napkin at uh, a restaurant yeah. in State College. So we told that story. To, I know that I'm just retelling it. Oh, so, you're oh, good job. I know. Yeah, that's, keeping all the. Well, but really, what you should be saying is you need to go back because that was such a good story. You should listen to that. That was in a previous episode. Previous episode. Previously on. Previously. So, uh, joy for you, my friend. Oh, joy for me. Um, so I'm trying to, oh my gosh, now, now I'm trying to remember what I recommended last week. I don't remember. Oh no, this is bad. Oh, um, cause I have something to recommend, but I'm not sure if I recommended it last uh, week. I think this last week you re- recommended a book. Yeah. Uh, was it, but it wasn't the data detective book cause that was in the past. No. Oh no. It was the running book. It was a running book. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not going to do another book because I don't want to, I don't want to pigeonhole myself. I'm going to, I'm going to do a podcast because I haven't done one of those in a while. So uh, a podcast that, um, that my, my wife loves and shares with me occasionally, but now I'm starting to listen on my own and enjoy is called smartless. Um, And uh, it has, um, no, I'm going to, I got to look this up and remember the, the guy's names because I know their names, but I, but I'm not thinking of their names right now. So um, it's Jason Bateman, Sean Hayes, and Will Arnett. Oh um, wow! And they um, they are hilarious. And the 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 idea of the show is that one of them brings on a guest, um, but doesn't tell the other two who it is in advance. And then they have a conversation between the three main guys and and whoever their guest is. So the most recent one was Stephen Colbert, um, and they're you know they're um, they're hilarious uh, and well worth, you know, your time and energy, but they're, you know, they're just, you know, they're, they're guys that are clearly friends and just, this is, this is the way that they are um, staying connected. I think that's probably how it happened is it started in COVID and they started doing this to stay connected, but they're kind of like us, kind of like, like us. us. They're, they're we I are think, like Jason Bateman and Will. Arnett. Yeah. I'm going to go with, they're a little more talented than us and a little funnier, just a little bit. Just well, I mean, just a little, but that's my, that's my joy. That's a great one. Smarts. I'm going to check that out. So mine is a movie that uh, has mm. been a while around for a, a bit and it, it has shown up, you know, numerous times in like, you know, feeds on like Facebook and stuff. And, and I've been a little bit, I don't want to hesitant to watch it because, you know, it looked like it was going to be a, a difficult topic. Sound of metal. And, and, you know, it's a, it's about yeah. a, a drummer, uh, like a heavy metal jump drummer who loses his hearing. And it is, if you haven't seen it, it's up for an Academy Award, which, you know, uh, I, when this episode drops, it may um, 
you know, that'll be determined whether uh, it's it's one. And, and I think uh, Riz Ahmed is up for, you know, uh, a, you know, best actor and there's some other things. But I will say what's brilliant about this movie, and it is brilliant, is the use of sound in the movie. It, it becomes mm. almost like another character. And so there are times when the sound dips out and you as a uh, audience member, you're a viewer, are, are kind of experiencing what maybe the main character is experiencing. Mm. You know, the, the times of silence, the times of like just noise, right? Because there, at one point he gets uh, cochlear implants. I, I don't, I, I just ruined part of the spoiler. story. Yes, spoiler, spoiler, I apologize. Spoiler um, horn. Uh, yeah, a little late with that. Uh, yep, I apologize. Yep. So if you haven't seen this, you know, be shocked when it happens. But anyway, um, but they change the sounds for you as the viewer. And that's really powerful. And, the, and I would say the only thing I'm disappointed by about the movie is that I didn't get to experience it in a theater. Yeah, I was um, just thinking that. And, and that's one of the things that I'm hoping to do when things open up is that maybe this movie gets, you know, out into circulation in, in some big theaters, because I think that there are times when you sit in silence for long stretches that I think would be even more, gri- it's gripping at home when you're watching it, like in your living room, but it would even be more emotionally telling, uh, yeah. sitting in a theater with strangers in the dark. And I think that that would be really powerful. And I'm, I'm hoping to have that experience. So Sound of Metal, it's on Amazon. Check it out. It is awesome. Nice. Yeah. And I mean, the way the world's going these days, like movie theaters let you just rent them out for relatively cheap. Yeah. So you could just rent it out, bring in the Blu-ray and have them fired up for you. Yeah. You can awesome. watch Sound of Metal. Sound of Metal. All right. So uh, episode 35, Scott. 35, man. We're 35. past the halfway to one year point. I know. Well, well past it. Well and, past. Well, it's been fun. Design principle number one in the books. And in the bag. In the bags. And, and we'll see you next time. Yeah. In between. In between. See you then. <laughs>